0: Alright, as we get started, one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible, by far, is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I've gone through that before, verse by verse, we studied the resurrection in the past, and we're not going to really go through that today. But it's just an amazing, the whole book is amazing, you know, and uh, he's, it could be called First Californians in some ways, because they're dealing with some of the same issues you see in a lot of the churches here in California, coastal city, uh, very affluent in areas, but a lot of sin and a lot of false doctrine and things of that nature. But one of the things Paul sets them straight on is on the resurrection, making sure they understand that if you are saved, you are trusting the Lord Jesus Christ and you are trusting the gospel, the good news, the euangelion of Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting because Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says, I make known to you, the NASB, or I declare unto you that which I've preached to you before, that and he talks about the gospel which I preached to you. He says, which you received. They had received the gospel. And then he says, by which he says, you also stand. They were standing. That's in the perfect tense. And the Greek perfect tense, you could draw a line from the past, the, which is the aorist. We say the word past, the past tense in, in English, but the aorist in the Greek. And you could draw a horizontal line from the aorist to the present. Because the perfect tense had to do with something that had happened in the past and was continued to have um, a relationship to the past, continued on into the present period of time. Some misunderstand the perfect tense. and They think it goes on just indefinitely into the future, uh, which it depends on the context if you want to be there, because I can show you in the Scripture in Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, where it talks about those who were beheaded because they didn't take the mark of the beast. It says they were beheaded in the perfect tense. Well, the same verse says they're resurrected that mean they're resurrected headless no okay so the perfect tense doesn't necessarily mean that something has continuing effects however guess what he says he's declaring to them, to them the gospel which they had received and by which they were standing and continue to stand aorist and the present tense go together in the perfect and then guess what they're continuing to stand and then he says by which you are being saved present tense present tense by which you are being saved. Then he says, if you hold firmly, NIV, if you hold fast, NASB, the word which I preached to you, unless you've believed in vain or to no effect. So he's really letting them know how it's important how important it is that they are trusting Jesus and that they're believing the gospel. Then he goes on to ex- explicate what the gospel is. He says, I delivered you that which I also received, that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that he rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. Amen? And of course, he's referring to the Old Testament Scriptures there. Sometimes when the New Testament refers to the Scriptures, it's talking about the Old Testament. And it could also be referring to some of the Gospels at that point. Because Matthew or Mark could have both been written already. We don't know for, for sure. But Paul does quote or allude to or actually references in Timothy uh, Scriptures from um, Matthew and, and Luke, actually. So it's interesting But guess what? That was one of the earliest writings of the New Testament letters. Many believe the first writing as far as the epistles went. And he's declaring to them the gospel by which they are being saved. They just need to hold firmly to it. You have to hold firmly to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Well, oftentimes when we think of the gospel, we think of what Jesus did for us. Almost everybody, when you say, hey, what did Jesus do for you? You will often say, well, he died for me. He paid for my sins. And amen and hallelujah to that. Amen? Amen? Paul claimed that's his main focus is Christ crucified. Amen? However, the crucifixion of Christ, His death for our sins, is part of the gospel. Okay? He also rose from the dead on the third day. Amen? And praise God, I look forward, by God's grace, this coming Sunday, to look at ten benefits of the resurrection. But right now, I want to look at ten evidences of Christ's resurrection. And if you multiply ten by a certain amount of minutes, you can see really quickly, that's going to be really easy for me to go over time. Because that gives me, you know, seven minutes each. And now it gives me like four and a half, five each because of my introduction. So I've got to be really careful here. But at the same time, and I don't want this to be a two-part message. So I'm going to move a little bit quick, but not too fast for you. And hopefully you'll appreciate the evidences of the resurrection. You know, Christians, when they debate atheists over the resurrection, they're almost always considered the winners. Because... When we're looking at the resurrection and we look at any event that takes place, what we look at is a principle of sufficient cause. So you being here today and how you got here, any event that you witness or you know about has a sufficient cause. You being here today or you watching by live stream and praise God, we thank you guys in our live stream audience for tuning in. We praise God for our brothers and sisters uh, throughout the, the country and the world. We love you guys. But guess what? However you are watching today or you're here today, you had a sufficient cause that brought you here. Motivation, you were willing, or your spouse was willing and dragged you here. Hopefully that didn't happen. Hopefully your heart's here, right? In our fellowship, that's typically the case. I mean the latter, not the former. (laughs) Uh, So it's interesting though, because when when a policeman discovers a dead body, they look for sufficient cause. The principle of sufficient cause. So we want to ask the question, what is the sufficient cause behind the records of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ? Notice how I'm framing the question. I'm not framing the question, what is the sufficient cause behind Christ's resurrection? Because that would be assuming my point. I'm asking, what is the principle or what is the probability what is the best sufficient cause the best explanation of a sufficient cause regarding the testimonies of the apostles, their changed lives the historical documents and the New Testament writings are indeed historical documents and testimonies what's the best explanation for those testimonies, what's the best explanation for the historical record of Christ's resurrection and guess what, when you look at it Hands down, the best explanation for the record of the apostles themselves claiming that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead, and those records, is the fact that it actually happened. And we're going to take a closer look at that now. Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 through 4, which I just went through, and I shouldn't have maybe taken so much time parsing the Greek there, But in verses 5 through 8 that follow the verses that I quoted, the Apostle Paul writes about, you know, different eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ besides himself. He mentions James, you know. He mentions Peter. He mentions over 500 people seeing the resurrected Christ. You know how many people it takes to get you busted of something in a court of law? How many credible witnesses they need? Just one. Credible witness if you don't have a better explanation? Well, think if you have a credible witness that's willing to die and steal their testimony in blood. Well, now you're starting to approach something that's rarely seen, but which is very biblical in regard to the biblical witnesses. Now, sufficient cause. Well, sometimes, but the resurrection, that's such a, a, a powerful thing to say actually happens. So, you know, what's the evidence of that? Because... But, you know, some things, sometimes, seem, things seem improbable. You can't get your brain around them. But if we deal with a God who created the universe, if God created the universe, by the way, which he did, by the way, speaking of sufficient cause, is nothingness a sufficient cause to create the universe? I, got to, I can't get dragged into that argument right now, but it's just, that's all I have to say. No, that's not a sufficient cause. Amen? But if God created the universe, which he did, obviously, he could... He could work in nature any way he wants. That's why miracles are obviously possible. Amen. God can make wine miraculously or he can make it naturally through grapes. He can turn water into wine. Amen. Amen. does it all the time. He does it through grapes. He can th- do it supernaturally. But it's kind of interesting when you think about it is it's the sufficient cause. Anybody ever watch Andrew Griffith's show? Anybody watch that? Aileen's smiling. She's like thinking, She's probably thinking that's one of the few wholesome things on anymore, right? Uh, anyway, there's a classic Andy Griffith show. Does anybody remember Mr. McBeavy? Not, anybody remember that one? Oh, Michael's got a big grin shaking his head up and down. I mean, he watches Andy Griffith twice a day. You know, no, I'm just kidding, man. That's better than the junk out there, Michael, if you do, so praise the Lord. But it's a classic because what happens is little Opie comes in and there's Barney Fife and there's Andy. And he shares with them that, you know, he just met Mr. McBeavy. And they say, oh, really? You know, and he shares how Mr. McBeavy walks on the top of the trees and stuff. And, and he has like 12 arms that hang from his belt. And, and he jingles when he walks. And he wears a silver hat. And on and on and on. And, and they're like, okay, his wild kid imagination, right? Well, guess what? He walks in with a shiny, beautiful hatchet. Mr. McBeavy gave it to me. Well, now they're like, uh-oh. And he's like, wait a minute, this is going too far. Because where'd he get that hatchet? And now we say Mr. McBee came in And he basically kind of grills him. Of course, the suspicious, you know, ever diligent Barney Fife is like, he's just making all this up. And he's like, you know, you need to put that back where you found it, you know. And he brings it back to the forest where he says he got it. And, and then a little bit later, he shows up with a shiny, beautiful quarter. And Mr. McBee gave me this quarter. And they're like, Mr. McBee does not exist. He's an object of your imagination, you know, and he gets grilled for what he's saying about Miss McBeavy, and of course, Bonnie Fife feels that he needs corporal punishment, you know, to heal him of his, of his wild imagination, which now has become lies, because he's not fessing up to it, and then guess what, Andy confronts him, he goes into his bedroom, he opens at the door, kind of just moping, and Andy says, hey, you know what, it's one thing to make up a story and play around a little bit, but you can't. It becomes a lie, basically, if you continue to perpetuate it, and it's not real. He goes, I want you to confess that you're lying right now before me, or you know what's going to happen, implying he's going to go whooping, because in those days, they actually spanked you, and there was a lot less murder and gang violence and everything else, you know? Uh, anyway, and Opie starts to admit that he made it up, and halfway through his admission, he says, but it's true, and it's true, there a is Mr. McBeavy, and you do believe me, don't you, Pa? Don't you believe me, Pa? And he shakes his head yes, and he looks like, and he walks out, and Barney's like, you believe him? And, you know, and he goes, you believe in Mr. McBeevy He goes, I don't believe Mr. McBeevy but I believe Opie, you know? So, I mean, you know, basically what happens at the end is, he goes to the forest, and, you know, he, cr- he says, Mr. McBeevy Of course, not expecting an answer. All of a sudden, Mr. McBeevy says, hello? From up in the tree, and he comes down the tree, and guess what? He's He's a telephone repairman, a, uh, a, a linesman, you know, that climbs the trees and deals with lines. His tools are hanging from his deal. He's got a silver hat on everything. And all of a sudden, you know, he himself. to Andy, and he's all so happy that his kid's not a liar, you know, and everything. But guess what? It didn't seem like there was sufficient cause, but the more you investigate something, you really look at it and you start looking at what, what has, what's the sufficient cause behind something, and you start uncovering the clues, you start to see more and more evidence that points in a certain direction. If you just hear about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and you say, well, he rose from the dead, and you don't look at the explanations for or against, uh, you might you know, say, well, I believe based on this. I mean, there's a lot of things we can get into that I'm not getting into, like Bible prophecy. I'm getting into 10 evidences of Christ's resurrection, but I'm not even looking at Bible prophecy. I mean, that might come up incidentally, but it's not going to be one of my 10 reasons. There are so many reasons, and each one of these reasons We could probably get into most of them for whole service, just any one of them. So I want to start looking at them because when you look at the sufficient causes, you start to see, wow, the explanations that try to explain away the resurrection are very, very weak. Now, it's interesting. Evidence number one. The transformation, and this is one of my favorites. Of course, I might say that with every one of them. They're all all really cool. But uh, evidence number one is the just radical transformation of the apostles' hearts and their attitudes. And I'm not talking about the transformation of their hearts being born again. I'm talking, about not, I'm talking about before they even received the Holy Spirit. Okay, I'm saying as far as in power. Before the day of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit came upon them in power. So I'm not talking about the transformation of their hearts spiritually because that is going to be one of my ten. But that's later. I'm talking about the transformation, the radical transformation of their attitudes. Because prior to... It's important to understand. Prior to seeing the resurrected Christ, they were despondent. They were gloomy. They were hopeless. And they were filled with hopelessness and despair. They were sorrowful. They were huddled behind uh, closed doors, hiding because guess what? Their master had been crucified and they knew that they could be next. And many of them would die later because of martyrdom. But guess what? After they saw the resurrected Christ they became very joyful and very bold and excited pro- proclaiming that Christ had risen from the dead. And it's important to understand because in Mark chapter 16, verse 13, they don't even believe Mary Magdalene's testimony at first that he's risen. And then in Math- Mark chapter 16, verse 14, guess what? Jesus upbraids them. He rebukes them for not listening and not believing in the testimonies of those who had seen him previously resurrected. He rebukes them for that. So their attitudes were of unbelief, despondent, sorrowful, and their their total idea about what had happened with Jesus totally was transformed. What's the best explanation for that? Somebody gave them a bunch of drugs or that they actually saw the resurrected Christ. So that's one evidence. Uh, Peter goes out, and preaches on Acts chapter 2, he's bold as a lion, right? The second evidence, all the apostles suffered great persecution, and many of them died as martyrs to seal their testimony in blood. This is another one of my favorites. Even before the apostles, John the Baptist is beheaded by, by he's, he's imprisoned, and then he's beheaded, right? In Matthew chapter 14, 1 through 11, Okay. Stephen is stoned to death, one of the disciples, after his witness uh, before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 6 through 8. James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of John, is killed by Herod Agrippa in Acts chapter 12. Amazing. Peter speaks of his martyrdom, or I should say Jesus prophesies Peter's martyrdom in John chapter 21 verses 18 through 19 and then prior to Peter's martyrdom we read in the book of Acts that he's threatened by the Jewish religious leaders uh that you know they better not preach and Peter and John declare Acts chapter 4 verse 20 for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard Look at these guys man it's it's quite amazing later uh they're beaten thrown in prison and so forth Warned not to go back and preach the gospel anymore, but we read in Acts chapter 5, quote, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. So it's amazing. They continue to preach the resurrected Christ. And then Peter, uh, we find out later from the church fathers, uh, ends up getting uh, put to death, martyred. And also the Apostle Paul, Apostle Paul. Second Peter, by the way, he talks about his impending death, as Jesus did in John 21. The Apostle Paul speaks about his impending death. And Clement of Rome, who we believe referenced Paul, or was referenced by Paul, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 3, talks about Clement. Many believe it's the same Clement. The Clement of Rome is called the first of the church fathers, because he's the earliest, along with Ignatius and Polycarp. So, you got Clement of Rome, Ignatius, and Polycarp. These were the earliest writers among the church fathers. Clement of Rome talks about how Paul had been martyred. And the other church fathers later than him state that he was martyred by Caesar Nero. He was beheaded, decapitated by Caesar Nero. So, it's interesting when you look at this, a lot of people will die for a lie. But they will die for a lie knowing it's a lie. I'm sorry, not knowing it's a lie. You have people from different religions believe something's true, but they don't know whether it's true or not for sure. And many, some of them will die for those things. But these apostles, when they died, they would have died knowing whether Christ had risen or not. Amen? Do you understand that? That's the, you, have to, you cannot miss that point. You have to understand. These apostles died... Knowing whether or not Jesus was the Messiah or not. Knowing whether he rose from the dead or not. And this is very, very important to understand because they sealed their testimonies in blood. Who could do that? Not men that are huddling behind a bunch of closed doors when the sisters, the women, go out to go and, you know, to the tomb on Sunday morning. But these same men, because they'd seen the resurrected Christ, the hardship they went through is absolutely amazing when you think about it. I mean, it's not just that they gave their lives as a testimony that he had risen, but the way they lived their lives from henceforth after he rose from the dead. It was very arduous, very painful, the things they faced. In fact, the historian, Michael Lacona, states in his book, The Resurrection of Jesus, A New Historiographical uh, Approach. Quote, he states, After Jesus' death, the disciples endured persecution, and a number of them experienced martyrdom. The strength of their conviction indicates that they were not just claiming Jesus had appeared to them after rising from the dead. They really believed it. They willingly willingly endangered themselves by publicly proclaiming the risen Christ. Now think about that. By the way, you might get some persecution if you say Jesus is Lord in our country, but very little compared to what they went through. Because to just say Jesus is Lord in an area where they taught that Caesar is Lord was considered blasphemous in the Roman Empire. Do you realize that? So we have, you have to understand, when you confess Jesus is Lord, and he be, that was a confession on, in your heart and your lips, that was, that was, those were fighting words with the Roman leadership who had just executed the, their, their Messiah. Do you understand how serious that is? But they're out there proclaiming that Jesus is Lord. Knowing they're going to be persecuted by the Jewish leaders, which they were heavily, read, the, read the, through the book of Acts, as well as the Roman leaders. So this is quite amazing. So literally Christians, many of them were either stoned to death or crucified or stabbed or skinned alive or dragged or burned at the stake. And they went to their deaths, often proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord. That's evidence number two. Evidence number three. And I love this one, too. I'm gonna, I, I, I was kind of being a little facetious saying I'm going to say that on everyone. but now that the more I look at it, I'm like, yeah, most of these are my favorites. <laughs> it's like a child. You can't really pick which one is your favorite, right? Evidence number three. The transformation of the terrorist Saul of Tarsus into the apostle Paul. I mean, that, that right there, man. That right there, you, you can't explain away. How does... Saul of Tarsus, a rabid Jew persecuting the Christians, early Christians, go from, and with letters, and I mean, he would go to homes and make people, drag Christians out, and make them renounce Christ publicly. That was a sad job, amen. He called himself the chief of sinners after he repented. But he had an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, amen, Amen. and Jesus appeared to him in blinding light, you know. And humbled him, and Paul fell down. And three days later, the scales fell off his eyes. But when he when he was in that encounter, he said, "You know, Jesus said to him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me?" And Paul's like, "Lord, you know, his spiritual eyes were open." And this is very interesting because I had a message a few years back called "The Conversion of Saul the Terrorist." That might have been a couple. Resurrection Sundays ago that you might check out because we just get into the Apostle Paul I I think I call it the conversion of Saul the terrorist. Quite amazing he's a Pharisee of Pharisees William Lane Craig William Lane Craig uh, is very very uh, effective apologist especially on the resurrection Uh, good in a number of areas though Uh, he makes the following statements in his book Reasonable Faith quote this encounter changed Saul's entire life he's talking about the road to Damascus He was a rabbi, a Pharisee, a respected Jewish leader. He hated the Christian heresy and did everything in his power to stamp it out. He says in his own hand that he was even responsible for the execution of Christians, uh, believers. Craig goes on to write, and then suddenly he gave up everything. (laughs) He left his position as a respected Jewish leader and he became a Christian missionary. As such, he entered into a life of poverty, labor, and suffering. All true. He was whipped, beaten, stoned, and left for dead, shipwrecked three times, and in constant danger, deprivation, and hunger. Finally, he made the ultimate sacrifice, and he was martyred for his faith at Rome. And it was all because of the day outside Damascus, that day outside Damascus. In his words, I saw our Lord, First Corinthians 9. I love that, man. It's just powerful when you think about it, guys. Your faith isn't based on a wish, okay? It ought not be. It ought to be based on historical evidence. And I believe we should go beyond the historical evidence into what Christ does in our lives, too. Because I think there's evidence that... There's one of the reasons I'm going to give that we sometimes overlook. That I think is one of the most powerful evidences. Evidence number four. The rapid... Evidence number four. The rapid and phenomenal growth of the Christian church. Do you realize the breakneck speed that the Christian church grew in in the first century? You realize they were, the Roman leaders were like, man, you know, they're, they're turning the world upside down, these Christians. And by the fourth century, Constantine couldn't beat, the, the Roman Empire was the greatest empire that had ever existed up until that time. And Constantine could not whoop the Christians from growing and the enemy couldn't, so he joined them, half-heartedly. He mixed paganism with Christianity. He himself waited for, he wanted to wait till he was, you know, old and ready to die before he'd be baptized, because he didn't really want to give up his sin. And he had coins, he had things minted that were pagan still, and so forth. And you had the birth of Catholicism, which is a mixture of Christianity, and some paganism. And then it became more and more pagan as the years went by, and they added more and more false doctrines but it's interesting because Christianity was growing so much. Now, just think about this, guys. Think about it for a minute. You got these guys that are like, mostly like fishermen, you know, uneducated, not philosophers and so forth, yet their faith and their belief in the Lord Jesus Christ and their spread of the Christian faith upended all the philosophies that were popular today and they became dominant. Think about that. That's just mind-boggling. The rulers of the age were reeling, you know, what is going on here? So much so that the leader of the Roman Empire said, "You know what? Let's Christianize the empire, and everybody should be a Christian now." And what happened was, as I said, you got to watered-down form Christianity because you had everybody claiming to be Christians. Oh, I should say, all kinds of people claiming to be Christians, but not wanting to give up their paganism. But it's quite interesting the phenomenal growth of the early church is one of the, to me, one of the great, wonderful, beautiful evidences of Christ's resurrection. Because guess what? If Jesus, think about it, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, right? And he just died on a cross. How's that going to do anything? How's your little group going to grow? Your little band of disciples. Especially in Judaism, when to die on a tree meant you were what? Cursed, Cursed, right? That's really going to take off, isn't it? You see what I'm saying? And these fishermen are going to, they're not the theologians of the age, they're not the Pharisees of Pharisees. It's not until Paul gets converted that you have one that's actually schooled. But you got Peter, and James, and John, right? And Paul wasn't in the picture when it first took off. The Christian faith was growing for the first 10 chapters of the book of Acts. It was exploding. Yet you had this radical transformation. Uh, if you've got a guy that says he's Messiah, he just gets killed. What happens to his group? Think of David Koresh. David Koresh claimed to be the Messiah with the branch Davidians. Is his group exploding throughout the world, and all kinds of people becoming Christians? I don't know of anybody that still follows that group. Maybe there's a few handful of people, but he obviously did rise from the dead. The only thing that explains the phenomenal growth of the Christian faith is that Jesus didn't only die on the cross, and he was cursed because he bore the curse for us and took the curse upon himself. Amen. But he rose from the dead and conquered the grave. And it's because of that message. And that's the only thing that would explain the zeal of the apostles who took that faith into the world with great excitement in a very infectious way because people saw they were real and they were sincere and they obviously had encountered the resurrected Christ. So the phenomenal growth of the Christian church, that should not be, that should not be downplayed. It's quite amazing when you think about it. Alan Richardson, Alan Richardson says, quote, The real evidence for the resurrection of Jesus is the existence of the Christian church at all. If we have regard to the circumstances in which the early life of Jesus had apparently ended in such crushing failure and disappointment, meaning given the arguments of the person that doesn't want to believe, it would be just a colossal disappointment if he didn't rise from the dead. That religion is not going anywhere, especially when all their predictions had failed, right? And their leader is dead and well guess what it didn't stop there because he rose from the grave just as it had been prophesied so it's interesting Uh, Jesus' death alone is not sufficient cause to explain the rapid and phenomenal growth of the Christian church but the resurrection is the best explanation would you agree back to our principle of sufficient cause now also (laughs) Uh, well, let's go to number five. So I want to make sure we get done on time. Evidence number five. The rise of the day of the Lord, Sunday, as a celebration day over the Sabbath. Now, you really can't appreciate, these are all so much bigger than I think we can really appreciate. Because you have to understand Judaism in the first century, And how wrong it was for people if you did not keep the Sabbath. It was huge. Especially when the early Christians were all what? Jews. Amen. And the Sabbath was one of the things that marked you as a Jew. Circumcision. The Sabbath. You know. And all of a sudden, what happens? The early Christians, the earliest Christians, began worshiping the Lord on Sunday. I love my Seventh-day Adventist friends and my Seventh-day Baptist friends. But I encourage you to look at what the scriptures say. And look at what the early church fathers said. Acts chapter 20 verse 7. First Corinthians chapter 16 verse 2. The early church met on the first day of the week. On Sunday. What's the sufficient cause of that? What's the best explanation that they would begin to worship on Sunday. Instead of what they, when they had been worshiping for 1500 years on Saturday. 1,500 years of tradition is hard to break, guys. Especially if you want to just be buddy up with the, the Jews and Judaism, you might as well say, hey, you know, let's just, if that was the ideal and it wasn't about truth, you'd say, hey, let's worship on Saturday too and just say we're Jews that have found the Messiah and make it easy. No. They radically broke and started worshiping the Lord on Sunday. What's the best explanation for that? The resurrection. The resurrection. Amen, Jim. In fact, guess what? I mentioned that Clement of Alexandria, Alexandria was the first of the church fathers. He's called the first church fathers. But I mentioned a couple others that are grouped together as three of them. Okay? There's Ignatius, Polycarp, and Clement of Alexandria. They're called like the, the first of the church fathers, but Alex- uh, Clement being the first. Well, guess what? Ignatius, in the early second century, late first century or early second century, in his letter to the Magnesians, paragraph 9, listen to what he says. One of the first guys writing about Christianity of where we have a written record, quote, those who were brought up in the ancient order of things have come to the possession of a new hope. Those who were brought up in Judaism, they have been come to the possession of a new hope, no longer observing the Sabbath, but living in the observance of the Lord's Day. By the way, the Lord's Day was called the Lord's Day really early on. So sometimes we refer to Sunday as the Lord's Day. Well, Ignatius did that really early on no longer observing the Sabbath, but living in the observance of the Lord's day, on which also our life has sprung up again by him and by his death. Sprung up meaning the resurrection and by his death. So Ignatius is saying, hey, we switched the day of worship to Sunday, the early church day, because Jesus rose on Sunday, the first day of the week. In the epistle of of Barnabas, okay, earlier mid-second century, he says that God told the Christians to, quote, in effect, quote, I shall make a beginning of the eighth day. If the seventh day is Saturday, what's the eighth day? Sunday. First day or eighth day. It's called the first day, the Lord's day, the eighth day. I shall make the beginning of the eighth day. That is the beginning of another world. Wherefore also we keep the eighth day with joyfulness, Just, or Barnabas says. The day also on which Jesus rose again from the dead. That's precisely why they switched their day of worship, because of his resurrection. Are you with me tonight? Justin Martyr, writing about mid-second mid, uh, century in his first Apology, chapter 67, says, quote, And on the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together to one place, and the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read. Notice they're reading the, the writings of the apostles and the prophets. And he, fa- he says this is followed by preaching and the Lord's Supper. Then he goes on to say, quote, but Sunday is the day on which we all hold our common assembly. Because it is the first day of which God, having wrought a change in the darkness and matter, made the world, and Jesus Christ our Savior on the same day rose from the dead. Everything changed when Jesus rose from the dead. Our calendar, death, burial, and resurrection, right? The very birth of Christ. Our whole calendar in the Western world is around Christ coming into the world. But the day of worship is a result of His resurrection. That's why Christians, hundreds of millions of professing Christians, not all those are real Christians. You have to know the Lord truly in your heart and have genuine faith in Him. Amen. And trust Him for your salvation and be following Him and His word. But uh, that's another, and by the way, that's another really awesome evidence, isn't it? Evidence number six. I love this one. All the other explanations for the empty tomb and the appearances of Jesus. And notice I'm not even saying the appearances of Jesus to his apostles is one of the evidences. That could easy, I could just we can multiply these almost, you know. But what I'm saying is this all number six, all the other explanations for the empty tomb and Jesus' appearance to his apostles fail miserably to explain what's going on here. They are they don't give sufficient cause. Do you understand? So let's look at some of the most popular of those. And I'll look, I, I've got seven different explanations I want to share with you. And let me know if any of these explanations is better. These are the ones that are used over and over again. And, and I, wanted to get a, I like to use the number seven a lot. So when I hit five or six, I, I, I find some that aren't as popular but that are, have been used, you know. So uh, seven different explanations. Explanation number one, the tomb was empty because Jesus' body was hidden by the Roman authorities. So the tomb was empty because the Roman authorities took the body and hid it. Does that explain all his appearances? Does that explain their disciples believing they not only saw but talked to and interviewed with the resurrected Christ? No. Oh, and by the way, that wasn't a, wouldn't be a very smart move. We've got to give the Romans a little bit more credit than that because then it, 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 it incredibly, stunningly, right, spectacularly backfired, right? <laughs> if that's what they were intending to do, to stop this Christian movement by hiding the body. And by the way, as this Christian movement is growing so rapidly, and they've got the body hidden somewhere, and they hate Christianity, keep in mind, Jesus was considered an enemy of the state. They had him crucified. Amen? All they had to do is do what to stop Christianity? Produce the body. Amen. Here it is. Here's the body. Never happened. Never happened. Because that is inspiring. Pretty ridiculous, but I have to go through the explanations because they're at least out there, you know. Now, explanation number two. The disciples went to the wrong tomb, and that's why it was empty. No, people. It shows you when you see these, they're, they're reaching for something. Okay, which is really ridiculous, okay, because when you read the narratives of the Gospels, they knew where the tomb was. By the way, the owner of the tomb lent it to Jesus. He certainly knew where it was, right? They had taken him to the tomb, some of the women and so forth, or been there. uh, You know, they they didn't basically uh, put the 75 to 100 pounds of spices on him, and he was wrapped in linen cloth and so forth. And uh, we read through the scriptures, and there were a number of people who knew where the tomb was. And by the way, if they didn't expect to be risen, because they didn't expect him to be risen at first, right? They were like in disbelief. And they went to the wrong tomb. Do you think they're going to think he rose from the dead? No, they're going to think we're at the wrong tomb. It's empty. So go over here. You know what I'm saying? I mean, we could go on and on and on with these. But it's interesting when you think about it because they obviously uh, recognize he was God. Plus, going to the wrong tomb does not explain the appearances again. Amen? And everything, a lot of other things we're talking about. So no, that doesn't work. Plus, in Matthew chapter 27, verse 66, we see that there was an official Roman seal over his tomb. And there were guards that were put around it, right? How do you get the wrong tomb, man? Matthew 27, 66 says, And they went and made the grave secure. And along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. So, that makes no sense. Explanation... I should start calling them bogus explanations. Bogus explanation number three. The disciples didn't really see Jesus. It was a mass hallucination based on wish fulfillment and expectation. You might already see just problems just as I read that. So it's this mass hallucination. They're all hallucinating the same thing when the different times they see Jesus. Okay, now before I was a Christian, I smoked a lot of pot, too much. I, I dropped acid and so forth. And my buddies and me did not share the same hallucinations. And if we shared somewhat of a same hallucination because we're talking or the same demons were talking to us, uh, the details were far different than each other's. Mike, you have been there too then? <laughs> yeah, me too. I mean, I confess it, man. Thank God I have Jesus. He restores the, the mind and the heart. Thank you, Jesus. You know? But it's interesting because there's a lot of problems with this, uh, this, this viewpoint. Uh, first of all, it can't be wish fulfillment because they had this high expectation. Did they have a high expectation? <laughs> We've already dealt with that. No, they were in disbelief. They thought, well, he didn't, he didn't rise. It didn't happen. They were all in despair. Okay? If they're hallucinating anything, it's like, it's the Romans. They're going to kill us too. They're not like, it's Jesus, you know. So that's, that's one problem. Also, medically, it's proven in medical science, people do not have simultaneous mass hallucinations where the details are the same, okay? It's just not, it's not part of our medical history and observation of people that have hallucinations. Number four, the appearances of the living, resurrected Christ were not fleeting, quick experiences. Oh, I think I saw him. He ran by from that tree to that tree real fast. Did you see him? Oh, I saw it too. I said, that must have been Jesus. It wasn't like that at all, guys. It wasn't like that. It was detailed discussions, with Jesus. Whether it was Peter and the disciples seeing him on the shore, amen? And Peter jumping, or John or, uh, jumping out of the boat and swimming to him. And then Peter being said, do you, Jesus saying, do you love me? Three times with th- different Greek words, right? And saying, restore your brethren, right? You know, or basically feed my sheep, which was a reiteration of restore your brethren earlier. Or it was Jesus talking about the uh, kingdom of God during those 40 days we read. Or it was him talking about the Great Commission, right? Or it was him on the road to Emmaus talking to two disciples and opening up their hearts to understand typology in the Old Testament, whether it was the law or the prophets or the Psalms, amen? And their hearts burning because he taught them. These are all encounters with the resurrected Christ, amen? So we want to believe that these two guys had this hallucination and it wasn't Jesus. And they had the best Bible study probably ever. You know? All the types of Christ? No. That does not work at all. I'm sorry. That's a very lame, lame idea. Explanation number four. The tomb was empty because he only fainted on the cross. He just fainted. Because he just, you know, just you know, went through a lot. He fainted. And then when they took him down from the cross and then they buried him, the coolness of the tomb just revived him. Oh, Wow. I'm just going to push that boulder aside, you know, and uh, just show who I am, you know. Come on, guys. The swoon theory that's been called, by the way. Yeah, exactly, Joe, you're on it, man. Joe said, what about the spear? Well, the Romans, the Romans army, you know, they were pretty good at some things. Wouldn't you agree? They kind of took over the world. They're really, really good at killing people, really good at executing so-called criminals And when Jesus had been there, and by the way, I mean, they literally, they make sure you're dead. And by the way, the last person they wanted to leave alive, and I don't know that they ever left somebody alive, would be Jesus, with prophecies about a coming resurrection, right? And they shoved a spear into his side, and out came water and blood, which indicates death, by the way, and the rupture of the the pericardium sac that goes around the heart being opened up. They made sure he was dead, and he was already dead before that. He, he you know, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, right? Hung his head and chose the very moment he would die. And then they thrust the spear into his side. By the way, Dr. Garland Baer, he states that even if Jesus had somehow survived the crucifixion, because of all the fluids that he lost in the Garden of Gethsemane and the whippings and the cross. Had he been placed still barely alive in the cool tomb, he would have died of shock, this doctor states. So that's ridiculous as well, but that we don't have to go there. He's just saying if that would have even been the case. Now, it's interesting. We're supposed to believe that Jesus had a crown of thorns shoved on his head, that his beard was practically pulled out, you know, that he was whipped not one time, but repeatedly different whippings, and he was scourged in such a way that Pilate wanted them to feel sorry for him because he knew he was innocent, so he had him whipped in such a way that they would say, well, that's enough. Okay, yeah, let's let's take Barnabas and have him executed. Right. I mean, before he got to the cross, man, he had lost so much blood already. And that he was crucified with huge nails to his hands and his feet, right? And then a spear shoved into his side and then ripped from the cross and that he all of a sudden was laying there and just like got up and like, man, and then somehow pushed the boulder aside, dealt with the guards in some way, you know, with Messianic, or, or no, it wouldn't be Messianic because he wouldn't be the Messiah in that case, according to them. And then somehow he impressed the apostles, look, I've risen from the dead, you know. I mean, would he look risen from the dead at that point? I mean, no, he needs serious medical attention, right? So that, that theory just fails miserably as well. Uh, explanation number five. The tomb was empty because the body was taken by grave robbers. The tomb was empty because the body was taken by grave robbers. Well, the grave robbers don't usually go to where a Roman soldier or more is guarding a tomb. Also, grave robbers, what's the most important thing if you're robbing a grave? The the clothes and stuff. In those days, clothes were valuable, especially burial clothes and spices and things. Well, how come they left all that behind and they just took the body? Oh, look, this is an interesting body. No, that wouldn't make any sense as well. Explanation number six, the tomb was empty because the body was taken by the disciples who wanted to save face. The last thing you want to do if you're concerned about your reputation is steal a body from a grave from the Roman Empire after the guy that you've been worshiping was just executed. Okay, I'm just saying the guy from their perspective, the Roman's perspective okay, and the disciples' perspectives if they were not believers anymore and they were just voicing a lie. Plus, that doesn't make sense either, either because of the strict morality the disciples were steeped in. Not only been raised in strict Judaism, but also the teachings of the Messiah which they recorded about honesty and righteousness. It makes no sense. It's not their character. It's not their character as well as they go basically lay their lives down for the truth of the gospel or what they believe to be the truth, which we know to be the truth and they knew to be the truth. But I'm saying it for the sake of the skeptic. Uh, this is what they believe to be true. So it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't fit their biographies. And uh, it doesn't fit their morality. And it doesn't fit reality. That they would just make up a story. And that everybody would hold to the same story. And nobody give in. And they don't even die and don't even let it out. That it was a supposed story. It doesn't make sense. And that they would be brutally beheaded and beaten, and so forth, and never, oh yeah, never mind, we're just making it up. No, they go to their deaths, as we point out already. Explanation number seven, Jesus's tomb was empty because his body dematerialized into gases and escaped through crevices of the tomb, and it was only his spirit that appeared to the disciples. This is a view. Uh, Leslie Weatherhead wrote his book, The Matter of the Resurrection, and he states in his book, quote, A process took place place unknown yet to modern science by which the physical body of Christ completely evanesced and evaporated or dematerialized. And he goes on to say through the speeding up of the molecular movement it became gaseous or gaseous and escaped through the chinks in the cave. Okay. And then Jesus appeared to his disciples with the spirit but he didn't really rise from the dead. Are you starting to realize that none of these explanations are very good? And that those who come up with these explanations, write entire books about these explanations, are really getting desperate to try to explain away the most obvious explanation for his resurrection. Are you with me? Okay, that's just so ridiculous. By the way, Jesus went out of his way to make sure no one would say it was just his spirit later. Luke chapter 24. Verses 36 through 43 says, While they were telling these things, he himself, that is Jesus, stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. It's after he rose from the dead. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that is, I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Do you catch that? For a spirit does not have flesh and bone as you see that I have. By the way, Jehovah's Witnesses need to see that too. Because Jehovah Witnesses teach that he didn't rise from the dead bodily. Jesus said, destroy this body in three days, or this temple, in three days I will rise it up. John chapter 2, 19 through 21. And the Holy Spirit says through the Apostle John that he spoke of the temple of his body. It was his physical body that had been risen from the dead. And he says, uh, and, and he literally says to them, Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While they still could not believe it, because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Spirits don't eat your food. They might harass you sometimes. You've got to resist them in the name of Jesus' Amen. but they don't eat your pumpkin pie. Okay. Now, uh, so it's interesting. The idea that Jesus' body simply dematerialized again shows a, shows a desperate. I mean, come on. You're just wait. Where did his body go? Oh, well, it just turned into gases. It didn't rise. Just really quickly in the tomb and escaped through the crevices, and then his spirit started appearing to people. Why do you even want to go there? Because they're trying to find explanations to deny the resurrection of, the, of Christ. Uh, Those are the explanations. So I said that the weak explanations that people use to me are (laughs) great evidence that we have the best explanation. By far and away, the best explanation is that the tomb was empty because Jesus rose from the dead. The best explanation that he could eat and, and have them touch his body and see his hands and his feet and have long encounters with them, with them witnessing the same encounters, all shows that he rose from the dead. Very amazing. Okay, evidence number seven. No tomb was ever worshipped or venerated as a burial place of Jesus. This is really interesting. Because you know when there's very popular figures, they worship or they venerate their burial places. Do you know that? When you even go to the catacombs, which I've been to Rome, and I've been to the underground tombs, which just go for miles, you know, and what's open to you is not all the miles, but a significant part of them, you'll even see where martyrs were Well, some uh, unfortunately, some of the early church actually venerated some of the martyrs in some way. But but many of them would say they honored them, but they weren't worshiping them, of course, uh, they would say. But uh, they they gave high places to tombs of the prophets in the past too. Moses' body was not buried where anybody would know because the idea is that it may have been worshipped and the Lord may have been keeping that from happening. But guess what? Nobody ever that we have any account of worshipped at Jesus' tomb. If anybody's tomb would be worshipped, think it would be his. But guess what? The best explanation that his tomb was never a place of veneration was that he'd what? Rose from the dead. And his true followers would not even think of that. Amen? I think that's really, really heavy when you think about that. I love that one. I was going to say it's one of my favorites, but I won't. Okay. Number eight. The conversion of James who happened to be the skeptic of his family. James was the brother of Jesus, you know? Uh, There's more than one James, right? There's James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee. But there's also James, the half-brother of Jesus, right? So it's interesting because Jesus was uh, was, uh, begotten by the Father and by the power of the Holy Spirit. But James was his brother from the same mother, and James, guess what? When you go through the Gospels, uh, his brother James and the other rest of the family were very dismissive of him at first. Very dismissive. You know, And I love how the Bible just puts that. It doesn't say, and when Jesus was two, he was doing wonderful miracles and he stunned his brothers and sisters and they were his greatest disciples. No, these are narratives and the warts are in the narratives. That's what I love about the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, you see the heroes of the faith have warts typically, right? And they're all there to see for the most part. I mean, some of them, I shouldn't say they're all, but they're glaring. All of them, for the most part, the most part have some warts there. And James was not a, I mean, come on. Some people hate their siblings because they're so perfect. Well, he really was perfect. Okay, could you imagine that? He, he's just so perfect. Well, guess what? Jesus was, you even have a little mocking going. Go and show them that you're the Messiah at one point, right? Well, James does not get converted until Jesus appears to him in the resurrection. And that's radical. And then you see James and, you know, his brother and his mother there at the day of uh, Pentecost. And, and then later, guess what? You see Paul referring to James as one of the three pillars of the church in Galatians chapter 2, verse 9. That's pretty amazing. And in Galatians 1.19, he calls James the brother of the Lord. Same book, one nineteen and two nine, called the Brother of the Lord and one of the pillars of the church. And of course, when you read through the book of Acts in Acts chapter fifteen, guess who's presiding over the church in Jerusalem? Not the apostle Peter. James, the Brother of the Lord, is the pastor or the presiding leader of that particular church, which is quite amazing. So James's conversion is quite interesting. Uh, how about nine? Two more left. Nine. Uh, how about the doubting Thomas? Thomas the doubter, amen? He is not going to believe, he says, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe, John chapter 20, verse 25. But what happens? Jesus appears to him. John chapter 20, verse 26. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Uh, through the doors, where, though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Notice he says, peace be with you, when he appears to them in the resurrection. I love that. Because a lot of times, you know, he knows they're going to freak out. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And then Thomas says to him, my what? My Lord and my God. Which is pretty dramatic. And by the way, that's the thesis of the Gospel of John, that Jesus is God in the flesh. Amen. Amen. And by the time you get to the end, in the beginning, the first few verses, the beginning was the the word was with God. The word was God. And all things were made by him, and nothing came to be but by him. Amen. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Verse 14. But not until the end of the Gospel of John, you see the climax where the guy that's doubting the most, Jesus says, stick your hands. Here, here I am. Do it. He's like, and literally, the Jehovah's Witnesses say, well, he's not calling God there. He's just like saying, oh my, G-O-D. But in the Greek, you can't go there. You know why? Because he says, literally in the Greek, the Lord of me and the God of me. I've looked at it in the Greek. It's the Lord of me and the God of me. It's pretty pretty bold. Evidence number 10. It's one of my favorites. Put this one at the end. Put this one at the end on on purpose. And it's because this one is not often used. But I thought this would go good at the end for this study because it's kind of a little bit of a devotional challenge too. And that is, it's probably one of the most underrated of the evidence of Christ's resurrection. And that's because it's not historical evidence, but it is in a way too. So it has some historical merit as well. But it's not the evidential type, uh, meritorious, you know, documented evidence that you might expect to see to show that he rose from the dead. But to me it is in a way. And to me it's very powerful. And that is the transformation, not of their attitudes from disbelief to belief, but the transformation of the human heart from being bent on evil to the Lord transforming us, to making us people that love one another and love Him. Amen. I mean, I know before I was a Christian, I tried to stop certain types of sins, even though I didn't really like to call them sins. But I would try to stop drinking for a little bit or, you know, partying as much or stop smoking. I stopped smoking like four or five times because I was, I was one of those guys, man, I'm playing football with my friends and man, but I've spoken so much. I'm like, and I'm hacking, oh, and I'm like, man, I don't want to hack, you know. So I quit smoking until a couple days later when I'd have a drink and start drinking. Then I, who's got a cigarette? Because all my walls would go down. And oh yeah, I could quit drinking. I could quit any of that stuff. I fought, right? But I was not quitting. And hey, guess what? Till I came to Jesus. I don't, I honestly, honestly, I don't remember ever thinking when I first became a Christian. And this is because my conversion. Keep in mind. It's not because I'm a great guy. It's because I was so bad before I was a Christian. My conversion was very strong. So I was like so much fearing and loving the Lord. I don't ever remember thinking I'm going to quit smoking. I'm going to quit drinking. I'm going to quit smoking pot. I'm going to quit cussing. Never. It just happened. Boom. You can ask my family members, you know. Just, everything just changed. The next day was, I was a different person. But you know what changed the most about me? Is you can change certain behaviors as a non-christian like the behaviors I've just mentioned to one degree or another but the Lord changed my heart all of a sudden I love people all of a sudden I found myself praying for my family members and my friends and all of a sudden I started hurting for the lost and and my whole orientation of who I was and what I cared about was radically transformed and I wanted to be around Christians. I didn't even know. I just need to find them. I didn't know any Christians yet, because nobody had shared the gospel with me. But I knew they were out there, and I was loving them already before I even met them. It was just a blow. My my life had so changed. And not every conversion is like that. Sometimes it's slower. You look at First Corinthians three. You look at Acts or Hebrews chapter five. There's different transformations. It doesn't mean I didn't need to grow. You know, because I'd get on my knees and cry to the Lord and think I was growing fine. And all of a sudden, I'd be convicted. Of of just this or that or the other like oh man he grow in that area, and that's to this day we're still growing. But my heart is so much different than it was before I was a Christian, and you can only explain that by the resurrected Christ. Because the resurrected Christ comes to live in us, amen. And I think it's important. Listen to this, and I think this is a, a, a because guess what? We await our bodily resurrection, but guess what? We've already experienced because of the resurrected Christ our spiritual resurrection. We've been born again. Amen. Now listen to this. John 13, 35, Jesus says, But everyone will know that you are my disciples if you what? Love one another. In other words, guess what? They're going to draw a line from seeing your love for one another. They're not going to think that you're Buddhist. They're not going to think that you're Muslims. They're not going to think that you're this, that, or the other. You know? They're going to think that they're going to know it's about me. And in 1 Peter 3, 15, Peter says, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always being ready to make a defense, an apologia to everyone. That means a a legal defense, like to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. In other words, guess what? Your light is going to shine. You're going to be such a difference in your life because you've encountered the living, resurrected Christ that people are going to actually ask you, what's going on in your life? And that's happened to millions of Christians through the centuries. What's gone on? What happened to your life? Doesn't happen typically to people who become Buddhist, but it happens to Christians all the time because something changes in our lives. And you know what I find interesting about Christians? All, a lot of us have this testimony. If people didn't know you before you were saved, they can't believe you were what you were before you were saved if they hear your testimony. The people that knew who you were before you were saved can't believe what you become after. And they're like, remember the Apostle Paul? No, that guy was killing us. He was having us killed, you know. Now, that guy can't be Christian. But God changes the heart. Now all of a sudden, Paul is a lover of the bride of Christ instead of persecuting the bride of Christ. The Bible says, if anyone be in Christ, he's a new what? A new creation. Behold, old things have passed away, and all things have become new. And I think, I honestly believe this, the resurrected Christ in us is a powerful testimony to the lost world, to where they begin to ask about the hope that's in us. And then we're able to share the apologia. I'm not discounting the historical evidence. That's what I spent 95% of my time on today. What I'm saying is, we also have this experiential evidence that we need to share with other people, that he has changed our hearts, that it's a supernatural thing that's taken place in our lives. It's because he has risen from the dead that when you're attacked by demons, you can cry out the name of Jesus and the demons flee. There's a supernatural evidence that he's risen from the dead. Amen. And listen to 1 John chapter 5, verses 9 through 11. And understand this, that the word testimony, one of the definitions for testimony is evidence. Listen to this. If we accept, and this is from the Amplified Version, as we do, the testimony of men, that is, if we are willing to take the sworn statements of fallible humans as evidence, the testimony of God is greater than... Far more authoritative, for this is the testimony of God, that he has testified or given evidence regarding his Son. Verse 10. The one who believes in the Son of God, who adheres or trusts in and relies confidently on him as a Savior, this is the amplified version, obviously, has the testimony, the evidence within himself, because he can speak authoritatively about the Christ from his own personal experience. The one who does not believe God in this way has made him out to be a liar because he has not believed in the evidence that God has given regarding his son. And by the way, the the Amplified has the word evidence there. And the testimony is this. God has given us eternal life, and we already possess it. And this life is in his son, resulting in our spiritual completeness and eternal companionship with him. In other words, guess what? Christ in you is a witness of the resurrected Christ. That he is who he claimed to be, amen? And as we live for him, that evidence is seen by the world, and some will acknowledge it and say, What in the world is going on in your life? Where do you get so, well, how come you're so joyful now? How come you're so happy now? How come your whole outlook, how you're just, the boss just treated you this way. I can't believe you're, you know, you're, 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 you're not doing what you used, to, you used to, like cuss him out under your breath, but now you're like, you're saying something in your breath, but it's not like you're praying for him. What is going on with you? You see? First John. Chapter 4, verse 13. By this we know that we remain in him, and he is in us, because he has given us uh, of his spirit. 1 John 3, 24. The one who keeps his commandments remains in him, and he in him. And we know him by this, that he remains in us by the spirit whom he has given us. So guess what? His Holy Spirit within us transforming our hearts and making us new is evidence of the fact that Christ is risen. Because you can believe in David Gresh. He's not going to change your heart. Amen? I love 2 Corinthians 4, 10, and 11 because I'm going to tell you what and we experience the witness of the spirit to different degrees in our Christian walk but I'm telling you right now the more you surrender the more you die to yourself in your Christian walk the more you experience the living Christ in your life. I'm telling you right now the more you die to self and live for Jesus the more you surrender to him the more you experience the witness of the spirit in your life listen to what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 10, and 11 always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be manifest in our mortal flesh. The more we surrender to him, the more Paul was persecuted and despaired of life and cried out to the Lord, the more he was able to see Jesus in his life. And I think that's true of all of us. The Bible speaks of Christ in us, the hope of glory. Listen to what sociologist Rodney Stark who was analyzing the survival and the growth of the early church, the Christian church, in the Greco-Roman Empire, and the impact it was having, and people seeing these Christian lives. But I'm telling you right now, guys, you cannot underestimate what was happening in the transformed lives of countless tens of thousands, then hundreds of thousands, then millions of professing believers in the Roman Empire, and how it impacted the world around them. He writes, sociologist Rodney Stark, quote, Christianity revitalized life in the Greco-Roman cities. By providing new norms and new kinds of social relationships able to cope with many urgent problems to cities filled with homelessness and impoverished Christianity offered charity as well as hope to cities filled with newcomers and strangers Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachment to cities filled with orphans and widows Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family to cities torn by violent ethnic strife Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity and for cities faced with epidemics fire earthquakes Christianity offered effective nursing service For what they brought was not simply an urban movement, but a new culture capable of making life in the Greco-Roman cities more tolerable. That's very interesting because that's nowhere been seen with any other group of people. And that's what's happened throughout the world. And I'll just close by talking about a, a gay atheist, British journalist. And you would think because he's a gay atheist, British journalist... He'd be very hostile to Christianity. But guess what? When he was young, he grew up in Africa. Then he went to the British Isles, became a journalist. Then he went back to Africa for some time. And guess what he said he had to admit? Listen to this. Writing in the Times of London, writing for the Times of London, uh, Matthew Paris talks about encountering uh, Christians and how his atheistic convictions well, proved to him that Africa needs God. He stated when he encountered a charity that provides a bunch of water pumps in the rural area for the communities of those who need water, that the African leaders that were leading that charity, many of them were African Christian leaders, just, they had basically blown his mind. When they demonstrated their faith in their quiet conversation and their action, but they remind him of the Christians that he had met earlier when he lived there, the Christian missionaries. These Christians he states, uh, were different. And they were different because uh, of the way they lived. He said they had a liveliness, quote, a liveliness, a curiosity, an engagement with the world, a directness in their dealings with others, which is not what he was used to seeing with the different tribal groups with all the hostilities and how they were all, you know, not quite what he's talking about. He talks about how these missionaries, these Christians, had returned to Africa uh, when he was there in, in his 20s that had a similar impact on him. He says that these missionaries lived with what he wrote, quote, something changed in their, their faces, the people that became Christians. Something changed, and this is a gay atheist journalist for the London Times. He said, something changed in their face, in the face of the people we passed and spoke to. He went on to say that their crushing tribal groupthink had been crushed. And he goes on to talk about how now they were not subservient uh, or subordinate to the kowtow of tyrants like uh, Robert Mugabe, Paris admitted that he, quote, had, quote, quote, become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa, sharply distinct from the work of secular NGOs, government projects, and international aid efforts. These alone won't do it. Education, training alone will not do it. This is what he's saying. In Africa, he writes, quote, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings a spiritual transformation, and the rebirth is real. The change is good. This is a guy being honest with, guess what, could only be evidence of a supernatural, resurrected Christ. Parrott says that what he, quote, observed among, I'm sorry, what he observed among the Christians in Africa, quote, confounds his ideological beliefs and has, quote, embarrassed his growing belief that there is no God. He had this to say about the Christians, by the way, that he met uh, that were providing the water pumps. Quote, their work was secular, but surely affected by what they were. Catch that? Their work was secular, but was surely affected by what they were. It's like he's looking at aliens, you know? What they were, what they, what, uh, what they were was in turn influenced by a conception of man's place in the universe that Christianity had taught. Now, it's interesting that he's trying to reduce it now to a worldview, but he can't escape the transformation of their hearts because a worldview does not change your hearts. He says, as an atheist, I truly believe Africa needs God. Removing Christian evangelism from the African equation may leave the continent at the mercy of malign fusion of Nike, the witch doctor, the mobile phone, and the machete. Wow, guys. What am I saying to you? I'm saying you can prove or you can Offer evidence of the resurrected Christ by the way you show that your heart's been transformed, by the way you love people, by the way you pray when people are getting out of hand or they're talking mean and evil about the boss. Maybe they're even saying some accurate information, but you take a different tone. And you say, hey, you know what? I'm going to pray for him, you know? What do you think? I'm going to pray for him, you know? I'm going I'm to, you know. Or, you know, maybe we should talk to him and say, hey, or whatever. Or when you're, they're talking about their neighbor or when people are gathering together saying evil about somebody that you say you know what you show something different you show that you love people when there's hurting people around that you're one of the first people to step up and and make a difference that when there's people that need water that you're involved in that situation right to provide water Jesus said let your light shine so that that men would see your good works and glorify your father in heaven amen don't hide your light under a he said right when you get the salt out of the shaker so I want to encourage you Because guess what? As you live your Christian walk and you let the resurrected Christ be seen in you, guess what? Then people ask you about the hope that's in you more often. And then when they ask about the hope that's in you, then you start to give them the historical evidence. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. He is who he's claimed to be. My life is different because he lives in me. The resurrected Christ lives in me. Amen? And that's just one of ten evidences, but I like that one a lot too. Praise God, you guys. We have great evidences of the Lord Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's done. And uh, I didn't want a part two, so you always feel free to leave. if You feel like, oh man, we went a little bit over that it's Cool, You can get up and go. But uh, I, I just want to get these all out and not have a part two. So, brothers and sisters, those are ten great evidences of the glorious resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sunday, we'll be looking at ten benefits of the Christian of Christ's resurrection. Amen. So, can we all please stand?